This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Joanna, Susanna, Caleb, Noah, and Lydia. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, and then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. For our first segment, we'll tackle a couple of serious questions from Joanna and Susanna. Here's Joanna's question. Why did the Jews call foreign people Gentiles? Well, technically, in Hebrew, you don't call foreign people Gentiles. You call them goyim, which means the nations. Gentile is a translation of the Hebrew word goyim, and pretty much it just describes anyone who's not from the nation of Israel. So no matter where you're from in the world, if you weren't born in Israel, that you are one of the goyim, you are a Gentile. Now, in the Greek New Testament, there's a different word in Greek for this same idea, ethne. That is the word that we get our English word ethnic from. So again, though, it's just a word to describe anyone who's not from here. Gentile just means anyone who's not a Jew. Now, the reason why this distinction was so important in the Old Testament was that God had made covenant promises to the nation of Israel, and those promises set them apart from everyone else. They were God's people, and the Gentiles were not. But in the New Testament, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is fully revealed, there is a great mystery that is suddenly revealed as well. It turns out that God had always intended to bring the nation, the goyim, the ethne, into his flock. He had always intended to save not just the Jews, but also Gentiles. And that's why the Apostle Paul talks about how Jesus has made Jew and Gentile into one people without distinction. That's why he says that we now know that salvation is not just for the Jews, but is for all people. In fact, in Revelation 5, we find that God's covenant people come from every tribe and language and people and nation, and that God has made them as diverse as they are into a kingdom. And this is wonderful news because it means that those who were far off, the foreigners, the Gentiles, people like us, have now been brought near by Jesus. Now Susanna has an interesting question about the disciple who betrayed Jesus. What job did Judas have before Jesus came? Well, Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve who followed Jesus closely, and he had a special job among the disciples. He's the one who kept the purse. That means that he was in charge of managing their money. There was a woman once who anointed Jesus with this precious ointment, and Judas was one of the people who objected to this. He said that that ointment should have been sold off and the money should have been given to the poor. 
the Apostle John in his gospel says the only reason Judas said this is because he wanted that money for himself. He kept the purse, and if they sold the ointment, all the money would go into the purse, and he could take what he wanted from it. Ultimately, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus by pointing him out to the soldiers who came to arrest him. He was actually paid for doing this. He received 30 pieces of silver. And it turns out that the prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 11, had prophesied this very fact. And we haven't gotten to this part of Zechariah yet, but we will soon. And when we do, you'll see this fascinating connection between Zechariah's prophecy and Judas's behavior. Now, the Bible does tell us about the past lives of some of the disciples. Uh, some were fishermen, like Peter. Matthew, he was a tax collector. The apostle Paul worked as a tent maker, even after his calling. Luke was a physician, a doctor. But the Bible never tells us what it was that Judas did for a living before he became a disciple. Now, personally, I've always wondered if he managed the finances of the disciples because he had some kind of experience like that in business or in banking before he became a disciple. But, of course, that is pure speculation. We just don't know what Judas did as a job before Jesus came. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Caleb. And since we've been talking a lot at church about the rebuilding of the temple, Caleb has a question about why the temple was destroyed in the first place. Why did God allow the temple to be destroyed? Now, if you listened to last week's episode of The Big Question, you'll remember that I explained how God permits sin and suffering ultimately for his glory. Although we cannot make a one-to-one connection, we do know that in a larger sense, the mysterious working of God's plan is designed to show how great and how glorious he is. So whenever you're wondering, why did God allow this bad thing to happen? Always remember that the ultimate answer is for his glory. But with this particular question, we actually can nail down the details better because the Bible tells us exactly why the temple was destroyed. There is no mystery about it at all. God spells out the reasons. The thing is, to understand those reasons, we do have to tweak the question a little bit because God didn't just allow the temple to be destroyed. It's not that some bad people came along and instead of stopping them, God permitted the destruction. Instead, God ordained the destruction himself. The bad men who did it were simply instruments of God. To borrow a phrase from Joseph in the book of Genesis, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But, but, wait a second, hold on. How was it good that the temple was destroyed? Well, it wasn't the destruction itself that was good, obviously, but it was the just punishment for sin that led to the destruction of the temple. That's what was good. Remember, God had warned his people again and again through the prophets that if they didn't repent of their sin and return to him, a great catastrophe would take place. 
Now, instead of protecting them, God would hand them over to their enemies. He would do this as punishment. Now, the goal of the punishment was not to hurt them. It was to lead them to repentance. Sometimes, if we're doing something wrong and we don't listen to a warning, it takes a consequence to get our attention. Now, when the people did not turn back to God, despite all the warnings from the prophets, their enemies overwhelmed them and destroyed the temple. But in a way, losing the building was just a confirmation of what the people themselves had already done. They had abandoned God, and because of it, they lost the building where God's presence dwelled. If you think about it, the people themselves destroyed the temple, not with their hands, but with their disobedience. But God didn't call the people to obey him so that he would love them. He loved them already. They were to obey because he loved them out of gratitude. In the same way that your parents don't tell you to obey them so that you can earn their love. They want you to obey because you love them in return. And when you don't obey, punishment comes. But the goal of punishment is repentance. Always remember that. In life, as you get older, you will experience painful things, sacrifices, hard things will happen, and you'll lose things that are important to you. And when that happens, instead of blaming God for it and asking, why did you allow this to happen? You should remember God's love and examine yourself for sin. Maybe there's something you need to turn away from and draw nearer to God. That's what happened with the temple. The building was destroyed, but you know what? Jesus has built a new temple out of us. We are his dwelling place. His presence is with us. And because of that, we should follow Jesus out of gratitude for his love. All right, it's time for a couple of fun questions. This week we have one from Noah and then another one from Lydia. Noah has a question about something he's noticed at church recently. Why do you need a microphone on your podium and another one on your cheek? Why both? Well, when you're at church this week, study the pulpit carefully and you'll notice what Noah's talking about. There's a microphone stand in front of the pulpit with a microphone pointed towards the speaker. And then when you see me up at the pulpit, pay attention to my face and you'll see that I also have a microphone over my ear with a little microphone head right close to my mouth. Now, Noah's question is, why do I need two microphones? What's the point of that? Is my voice so tiny and quiet that it takes two microphones for you to hear it? Well, as a matter of fact, that's not the reason. The reason there are two microphones is that the one on the stand isn't for me. It's for everyone else who participates in the worship service. Each week, we have an elder leading our confession of sin and our intercessory prayer. We have a deacon praying for our tithes and offerings. We have a reader who reads our psalm and our scripture reading. Now, I have to wear the special microphone because all of our sermons are recorded, and that's the microphone that records them. Plus, if I have to move away from the pulpit to administer communion, for example, or to perform a baptism, you can still hear what I'm saying because I have that microphone over my ear. And that is why we have a microphone on the pulpit and also one that I'm wearing. 
Now, Lydia has a question about homework. She asks, do you like math? No, Lydia, I don't like math. I don't like it at all. I like literature. I like history. I like art. I like theology. I like philosophy. I like just about every subject more than I like math. In fact, in school, I even liked P.E. more than math, and I wasn't a big fan of P.E. But even though I don't like math, I did have to learn math because math is important. Practically speaking, you rely on numbers all the time, and you don't want to still be counting on your fingers when you're as old as I am. Now, math is also important because it reveals the order and design of God's creation. Whether you're doing calculus or composing beautiful music, math is part of the intricate pattern of how the world works. So, even though I don't like math, I do love it because it tells me something about the work of God. And what about you? Do you like math? I bet I can guess the answer. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.